good. To honor your time, I want to go ahead and uh, jump in. Let me um, let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we thank you. We thank you that you not only reign and rule over the entire universe, but over our hearts. We spend so much time trying to pretend that we are okay, but you know. So we ask that the reality of your knowledge and yet your acceptance of us might transform us, that we would be liberated to bask in your benediction and to view others in their need rather than as competition. Would you change us from the inside out that we might become greater lovers, lovers of you and of our neighbors and of your earth? Would you give us the ability to listen even now? It is late in the afternoon. There is much on our minds. But we ask that you would use this hour for our good and the good of your world and kingdom. Uh, so be with our speaker and with us as we listen. In Christ's name, amen. I don't, I'm not going to give a long introduction. You heard uh, intro uh, for Dr. Bartholomew this morning. But let me just give you a quick sense of what's happening. So Dr. Bartholomew will be giving a lecture, but also one of the things we really prefer about these afternoon sessions is some then time for give and take for you to engage with our speaker. And we'll be doing that. So as he speaks, please be thinking about questions you would have, things you'd, whether you want to push back on or things you want to learn more about or practical implications, whatever. We can go any direction you guys want to, but just know there will, be, there will be a lecture, but then there is space um, for Q&A and discussion, but we will try and end at five to honor your time, okay? Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Bartholomew. So it's really great to see you here this afternoon. I just want to say covenant has done something to me that no one has ever done. You're heading down towards exams. You're tired. They have me talking, and they have a prop behind me. Okay, so who's going to have the first snooze is what I <laughs> So, uh, you know, now I've drawn your attention to it. Now ignore it. Okay. But if you're really tired, you have a snooze. You know, I was telling some of your profs earlier today that when one is a young prof, you, you're always worried that you have enough material for the lecture. So you end up jamming it in. And then I read this beautiful book by a woman on the spirituality of education. And she says, as you get older, you're thinking, now when in class can we have a nap? <laughs> That's the approach I like. Okay. So I, I want to talk to you this afternoon about entertaining foxes, spiritual formation, and the Caparian tradition. And Dr. Kapik and I have talked about me trying to keep my uh, talk reasonably, where did I put my... Uh, reasonably constrained. So some of it I'm going to go over fairly quickly. The paper itself would probably take about 45 minutes, but I'll try and reduce it. And you know, uh, so this is my first time at Covenant, which I just adore your campus. I'd like to, you know, pick it up and take it to England and adorn Cambridge with this campus. But I really want to hear from you. So you have so much to teach me. Okay, so in this area of, you know, prayer and spirituality, I'd love to hear about your practices, your challenges, and whether this resonates with you or whether you've got it all together or not or whatever. Now, Dick Stauber notes that in this intellectually and aesthetically impoverished age of Christianity light, a bit like Coke light, it is heartening to remember that for centuries Christians were known for their intellectual, artistic, and spiritual contributions to society. And these are the names, you know, that roll off one's tongue with great glory. Bach, Mendelssohn, Dante, Dostoevsky, Newton, Pascal, and Rembrandt are but a few who personified the incredibly rich tradition of faith, producing the highest and the best work, motivated by a profound desire to glorify God and offered in the service of others for the enrichment of our common environment, culture, 
Now, he has a name for these people. He calls them culturally savvy Christians, serious about the centrality of faith in their lives, savvy about both faith and culture, and skilled in relating the two. Now, as students in different wonderful disciplines at this, this uh, institution, I hope this quote stirs your hearts and profs too with a great desire to transform our age of Christianity light into such something rich and deep, even as, uh, as we are those who pray, your kingdom come, and we long for that day when the nations of the world and all their treasures and peoples will come and be placed at the feet of King Jesus. I'm assuming you are familiar with the tradition of Abraham Kaper and his followers, but if not, let me alert you, not to, to the story of Kaper, although that is fascinating, but to the heart of the Kaperian tradition. There is one word that Kaper drew on to encapsulate uh, his thinking and his practice and that of his followers, and it is the Greek word palingenesis. And uh, Kaper, you know, was immersed in scripture, uh, sometimes I think to excess. So if you read, if you're a theology major, there's his great academic work is his three-volume Principles of Sacred Theology, only one of which is translated into English. And there you see, I think, the genius of Kaper, the theologian at work. But so he always reached for Greek words and tried to give things biblical Greek names, but some of them are just, they just don't work then, and I'm, uh, they certainly don't work now. But this one I like, palingenesis. In Titus, this word is used for the rebirth involved in an individual becoming a Christian, okay? And I remind you, because sometimes at these Christian institutions, we all assume that we're all in the cookie jar, and therefore everyone is a cookie, okay? But then when there's a mouse in the cookie jar, you say, now what went wrong? So I would remind my students with Kaper that you have to be born again. This is the work of the Spirit to raise us from the dead of, of sin and death in sin to new life in Christ. And so Kaper would say to you, and I want to say to you, it's very important. You don't need to be able to say at 4 p.m. On, on this day I was converted. But you do need to be able to look back, I think, and say, once I was blind, but now I see, okay? And don't make the mistake, I mean, at these Christian institutions of thinking, you know, because I hang out with Christians and great-great-granddaddy was a Presbyterian minister, therefore I'm a cookie, okay? You could be the mouse. Now, in Matthew, however, this word is used for the renewal of the entire creation, and you see, what Kaper does is he will not concede on either one of these meanings. Individual conversion is essential, and Kaper himself, fascinating conversion. If you're a literary major, he has a project for you. Kaper was doing his doctorate in theology, okay? And uh, he was engaged to, to his fiancée, of course, and uh, he was, you know, castigating her. She was preparing for profession of faith. And he, he was very liberal. And he said, you know, how can you believe these things and these things? And then she sent him a gift. And that was the best-selling novel of the year, Charlotte uh, Jonger's The Heir of Redcliffe. And if you don't know anything about Anglo-Catholicism, that, that's probably quite a good thing. But uh, uh, if you're an Anglican, you have to know about this. This was the rebirth of high Anglicanism in the 19th century. And the great names of, of those people, John Henry Newman, Keeble, and Pusey, and they did write some, some of my favorite hymns. Uh, uh, John Henry Newman's, if you look on YouTube, there's a very simple, or there was, version of Lead Kindly Light which is just cars and that going in the midst of rain. And it is absolutely profound. Anyway, she was mentored by uh, uh, Pusey, I think it was, who was in the next parish. And so what she did, her life calling, 
was to give expression or to clothe the Anglo-Catholic vision in the best literature of the day. And so this was the best-selling novel of that year, and uh, Capeth Beyoncé sent it to him. And in it, there, there are two men who are the major characters, and the one is a real go-getter, brash, assertive, and the other one is far more gentle. And Caper identifies himself very deeply as he reads with this brash, strong guy. And then as the novel unfolds, and this is the thing that literature alone does so exquisitely, the tables are turned. And the, the gentle guy eventually uh, uh, dies having saved the life of the other guy. And the other guy reaches a point in the narrative where he's in a chapel and he kneels to pray and Kaper kneels to pray. Converted, doing a doctorate in theology with a father who's a pastor. And so he enters the kingdom of God. And we have to do that too. But what Kaper saw is that not only do we have to come to Christ individually, but I would put it this way, when you're baptized by the Spirit, this is Corinthians, into the body of Christ. So you have to become a Christian by yourself, as it were, but you are never alone in Christ by yourself because you become part of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And then if I had time, I would take you to Colossians 1. And this is Christology that you've got to drink so deeply at the well uh, of that it just runs through your DNA. And there you will see that Christ is the head of the church. Amen. But he is also the firstborn of creation. And so this is what Caper saw with such incredible clarity that the one I have come to, the one that is my Savior and my Redeemer, is also the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. Okay. Now, the effect of that is that if this is the Christ we are following, and I, I really try and go around speaking when I can, telling people with J.B. Phillips, he wrote a book with this title, Your God is Too Small. Okay, I come to your churches, and it's bless Uncle Jack, and please be with Auntie Betty, and so-and-so fell off his bicycle the other day. Meanwhile, and you know, you don't get a sense in many of our churches that uh, our God reigns, that he's busy at work recovering his purposes for the whole of creation, and that includes whatever it is that might be going on in the White House today. God alone knows, okay? And what is going on in South Africa, where I come from, and Venezuela with all those challenges, and Brexit as our dear Prime Minister tries to push something over the finishing line. You know, we have to have the whole scope of creation in front of us because it belongs to God. It's from Him, through Him, and to Him. That also means that our service is creation-wide. And so uh, I, I think you guys developed this heresy in America. And uh, so I keep trying to have it shipped back to America. But they, they don't seem to want it, and some Brits quite like it. And that is this heresy that because I'm a priest, Anglican minister, I'm in the full-time service of God. You, alas, as a biology major or architecture or whatever it is, the best you can do is participate in my full-time service in the institutional church. So no one will tell you this, but, you know, let me bring you the bad news. At the very best, you're a part-time servant of God. This is heresy, okay? The, the pastoral ministry, which is truly glorious. I was a pastor. I loved it so much. When the pastor has done well, there is nothing like it. But it's not better than being a parent or serving in ecology or environmental. It's different. They're all of enormous importance and consequence, but one is not better than the other. And if I had time, I would take you to Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. And you know the epistle to the Romans, that in Romans chapter 1 to 11, Paul unpacks the gospel, and it is enormous. So you have the doctrine of the universality of sin, and then you have the doctrine of justification, and then you have the doctrine of sanctification, and then you have the doctrine of glorification, and then you have those chapters on election. 
and, and you get to chapter 12 and you're just breathless with the sense of the enormity of what God has done for us in Christ. And then as Paul always does, he says, therefore, in the light of the enormity of what God has done in Christ, I beg you, you remember it? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It doesn't say soul or spirit. Why does he say bodies? It's the totality of your personhood. And you know what I learned from that? Every Christian is in the full-time service of the Lord Christ. The only question is where and how. And sometimes that service even takes the form of unemployment. It's possible in God's will to be unemployed and in the full-time service of the Lord Christ. And my friend, an economist, visited a church once where one of the homeless was one of the elders of the church. Something exquisitely beautiful about that. Not that we seek unemployment, uh, but sometimes it comes to us. Now, this is the Caparian vision. It's enormous. It wants to take, and, and I want to take, and I just wish I had the time to sit down with every one of you. And I look around here, and I notice your particularities. It's one of the things that freaks us out. There's never been another one of you. And on good days, we look in the mirror and we say, America is blessed. And on bad days, we say, what the heck? <laughs> you know, I want to be like that person. It's just not fair, you know. But see, the, the glory of it is, and we talked about uh, this, uh, I think, this morning, if my memory <laughs> serves me, from this morning. Why does God save us? In order to make us fully human. And there's the potential for every one of your lives to be opened out so that, in the words of Paul in Romans 13, you clothe yourself with Christ. Those were the words that brought Augustine into the kingdom of God. And uh, I think it's Henry Chadwick, the great English church historian, says, when Augustine moved into the kingdom, the greatest mind uh, in the Roman Empire had come into submission to Christ. And so there's nothing that is too great or too big for this Christ. Astrophysics, the most, you know, why would we think that somehow the greatest reaches of, of human culture are beyond Christ? From him, through him, and to him are all things. And therefore, we are called to take our lives and to lay them on the altar, as it were, and to become the living dead. Have you heard of the band? This will age me, I know, but have you ever heard of the band The Grateful Dead? Okay, don't watch that band. Okay, and please don't go home and say, you know, never forget what uh, happened, Mom. We got introduced to the Grateful Dead at Covenant College, and I'm off to, no, no, don't. Okay, we're not the Grateful Dead, we're the living dead. And the irony of this, though, is this is, this is not dying to your true self, it's dying to your false self. And as you die to your false, the compulsive, the, you know, all, all these horrible type of selves we seem to have developed, so that the true self can emerge, this does not diminish your humanity. So it's this really scary thing that Dr. Capek will come more truly Dr. Capek, okay? And Craig will become more truly Craig. And you, you know, so if you want to know if the spirit is really at work in your life, ask you this, yourself this question. As an individual, am I becoming more truly alive? If you're dying, there's something wrong. If you're becoming more truly alive, that is what the spirit loves to do. So this absolutely colossal vision. Now, uh, if you do cytology, you will learn that the brighter a light shines, the deeper and the longer the shadow it casts. Okay? And so, you know, w with all of us, we have to learn the incredible strengths of our individuality, and there'll be a shadow side. And the shadow side you need to be conscious of, make friends with, so that you're not, you know, driven by the shadow side. Now, the Caparian tradition has its shadow side. You can 
get this vision and you get so caught up with it that you are in danger of entertaining what Kaper calls little foxes in your vineyard. And they can wreak havoc in your vineyard. Now, so this is his little book, which I think is being translated into English, but I couldn't find the English translation. Drie kleine Fossen, three little foxes. And Kaper himself uh, identified these dangers I'm just going to take you very quickly through the first two, then I want to say a bit about the third one, which I actually think is a fox we need to entertain. Okay? So I'm a Caperian, but I refuse to absolutize Caper. It's one thing to learn. We do not absolutize human authorities, however great. We follow Christ. Okay. So the first one is the danger of intellectualism. Okay, and I think uh, uh, it's just the nature of a university that this is a huge danger. But you ally that with this Christian dimension. And if you are an intellectually oriented person or you love the life of the mind, and some of you, I guess, have come to uh, uh, Covenant and discovered that for the first time in your life, which is beautiful. But intellectualism is where the existential, experiential dimension of your faith recedes and the intellectual starts to take over the whole thing. And what you'll find is that you have no time for God, but you have all the time in the world for big fat tomes about God and physics or God and this or God and that. And what happens is the head grows enormously and the spirit and the heart slowly shrivel. So this is a danger of intellectualism. And for those of you, uh, do you do Greek and Hebrew here? You do, okay. So for those of you who are doing Greek and Hebrew, the sort of sign that this may be going on is that you are having your devotions, but your Greek and Hebrew are next to you and five commentaries on the other side. And see, instead of doing what we would call Lectio Divina, spiritual reading, where you come to Scripture to receive what God is saying to you, what you'll find yourself doing is analyzing Scripture in a kind of hard academic way because it's become so titillating and so enjoyable. But what's happening is the intellectual is taking over the work of the heart to receive God's word and simply to listen to what God is saying to you and then to be still before him. So that's intellectualism. It can happen with any discipline. Uh, the second one, and, and just, you know, in case uh, sometimes we're Christians, I doubt you have this at Covenant, but when I went to seminary, to tell you the truth, my devotional life was better before I went to seminary than when I left seminary. And the reason for that was I picked up, no one ever said this, but the brighter you were and the better the marks you got, the more spiritual you were. That's intellectualism. Okay? So that's one fox, and it's a dangerous one. Okay, and what you'll find, if you, if you go the intellectualist route, it's unsustainable. So what you've really done is you've taken the plant of Christian thought and you've cut off its roots. And for a while, it will still continue to entertain and stimulate. And then you'll reach a point where it loses interest. Eventually, it will become sterile. Eventually, you might hate it. That can happen. But that's the danger of intellectualism. Uh, the other fox is uh, the danger of activism. So these are, are perhaps, you know, you've just got such a vision for the needs of the world. And so, which is beautiful. You know, we want all your energy harnessed, not towards earning a fat salary, but towards service, of especially of the poor. I mean, I, I come from Africa. You know, one of my continual questions is, when will the church become the voice of the poor? 
You know, so, uh, and there's a, a Polish journalist, Reichard Kapuscinski, who helped me to understand what real poverty is. And he's in a country in Africa. If you're a journalist, by the way, I would recommend every book that he has written, Reichard Kapuscinski, a kind of Catholic uh, journalist who was the only, <laughs> during the communist era, he was Poland's only uh, external journalist that they sent. Now, of course, they couldn't send him to the West. So he went to all the hotspots around the world, just absolutely fascinating. But he's win in one area of extreme poverty, and there's a woman down below, and all she has in life is a bowl. That's all she has. And with her bowl, each day she can get some herbs and make a bit of a mixture and eke out an existence. And one night he hears this dreadful, dreadful scream from the alley below. Someone has stolen her bowl. So there are forms of poverty and pain in this world that are just crying out for people like yourself to discern your vocation and to seek to respond to that call. But the danger of activism is you start to think of yourself as the Messiah. And you start to think that the needs are so great and you start to think that because the needs are, are so great, you are the person that God is calling to meet those needs. You, you find this, by the way, in pastors. It's a kind of pastoral disease. It's called the fix-it syndrome. At least that's what I call it. Where, you know, anyway, is there a need? Here I am. Okay? A and you start to think that you are indispensable. And you start to take on the mantle of the Messiah. Now, of course, for all the good reasons. And it irritates you that not everyone else at Covenant is doing the same. But it's a recipe just for exhaustion. And so if you're doing this kind of thing, you'll find yourself thinking, I don't know if I can cope with another mission trip. Okay? And you exhaust yourself, and then down the line there will be burnout. And then you will find that that is not a fun thing. So those are two foxes that we need to watch that we do not entertain. Now, the third fox that uh, Taper mentions is mysticism. Okay? He doesn't like it. Now, there's types of mysticism that I don't like. If mysticism means that you hate the materiality of the world and the body, and you need to go hang out somewhere where there's no one, Maybe, you know, and this could be a criticism of Anthony that I spoke about this morning, 20 years by himself. And some types of mysticism, they hate the body and they starve the body. And, and the whole idea is to get the soul to ascend to God uh, away from the material. Well, that's not Christianity. That's, that's a type of Platonism. Plato thought that the body is the, the soul. Uh, 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 sorry, the body is the prison of the soul. And then redemption becomes releasing the soul from the body. So that, I agree, we need to reject. But uh, it is, you know, so it all depends what you mean by mysticism. In my opinion, what we need to retrieve in the Caparian tradition is spiritual formation or Christian spirituality. I think I've met enough Caparians with well-developed minds and Calvinistic work ethics, only to discover they are unformed as whole people. And you will soon discover they're not fun to hang with. Okay, so, and that's what we don't want out of Covenant College, is, is brilliant minds, you know, incredibly committed to mission or some form of service of God and dreadfully unformed as people. Because then what you'll find is that your unformedness will muddy the waters of everything you do. Okay? And I could talk at length about that. Now, you know, you may say, but Craig, what does this look like theologically? Well, the doctrine I think we need to recover is the doctrine of sanctification. Now, the problem is that when I say the word sanctification, uh, I didn't see ten of you fall off your chairs with excitement. Because this doesn't sound, if I may use this language, the sexiest word you e ever heard. So, oh, okay, well, maybe not. 
But, uh, uh, you know, it is the most exciting thing imaginable when you define sanctification biblically as becoming fully human. Or one, another way I like to define it is as becoming whole. Now, the problem is, I think, if we're reformed or evangelical, as I, I imagine most of us in this room are, that there are resources in the evangelical reformed and the Caterian tradition for spiritual formation, but in my opinion, very happy to be proved wrong, there are not deep, sufficient resources. And in my experience as an evangelical, you know, one was converted, and then no one stops and says, look, you're an adolescent teenager. You know, we're going to get alongside you and help you to develop as, a, as an introverted ad adolescent teenager. Oh, no, no. What's immediately held before you is the mission of the church and especially evangelism. And it's assumed that if you're converted, you're ready to go. Okay, well, that's about as unbiblical as you can get. If you read the Old Testament, is it, have you ever wondered why? You know, after Abraham is given that incredible promise in Genesis 12, you know, what's 12 to 50 doing in the Bible? You know all those funny stories, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, you could write across them what someone uh, entitled a book about Bill Clinton, human, all too human. Why are those chapters there? You know why? Because those who are bearers of the promise have to be formed to be like the promise. Those of us who are going to carry the Christ light into the incredible darkness of a world in such desperate need, we have to be in the process of being formed to become like the Christ light. And that is a long and often very painful journey because we are justified, but we are not yet sanctified. We have been pronounced righteous in Christ, and now we need to be formed to become like Christ. And that's a long journey. Now, so what I have found is that uh, often you have to turn to the Catholic tradition to find deep resources for spirituality. So, that doesn't mean, I think, that you should espouse them uncritically, but there's a tremendous need, and, and I'm trying in my own work to start doing this, to uh, receive the great work of people like Eugene Peterson, who's about the best we have in the Reformed tradition. But you'll see he himself leans heavily on Catholics because we don't have deep resources. So there's a tremendous need in our day to find a group of us who will not only be committed to the practice of spiritual formation, but who will also write about it and bequeath an incredibly deep literature to the church for our day. Now, if you're interested in that, you should catch me afterwards, because I'm starting work in that direction. But it'd be fabulous to have, you know, I don't know, 50, 100, three people from Covenant who are on that journey with me, and that may be something that God may call you to. But, so I just want to flag, before we have question time, some of the, the things I have in mind by uh, a deep spirituality. So uh, Henry Nouwen, you know, went and was deeply influenced by Jean Vanier. Now, I'm not going to stop and explain who these people are, uh, you know, un unnecessarily, but Vanier founded the movement L'Arche, which means art, okay? And that is, he set up, so, so this is what happens. Uh, Jean Vanier did a doctorate in philosophy. And then he's working with his spiritual director to discern. He also came from a top Canadian family. His father, Georges Vanier, you'll find Georges Vanier schools all over Canada. Okay, so, but uh, Jean Vanier worked in the Navy, doctorate in philosophy. Now he does a process of discernment. And he finds the call coming to live community with the mentally and physically disabled. And so he sets up what became the mother house in Trosley Brule. 
Okay, I had the privilege of, of John attending a conference I organized in Rome. And all I can say to you about John Vanier is that uh, there's something Jesus-like about his humanity. And that's what spiritual formation produces. It is literally as though they are clothed with Jesus in their own unique way. Anyway, now one says of uh, the oratoire, the prayer room at uh, Trosley. Now, of course, this is Catholic, so the Blessed Sacrament is exposed all day long, where people are always present in silent adoration. He says, the unceasing silent prayer in the presence of the hidden God who gives himself completely to us is the breath that makes last possible. Every time I enter l'oratoire, I feel a deep rest coming over me. And even if it is hard for me to pray, I feel held there. It is as if the room prays for me. I know of few places where the presence of prayer is so tangible. If I can't pray, I go there so that I can at least breathe air rich with prayer. And see, it's this kind of, you know, deep-centeredness in Jesus that you find in the, works, uh, in the work of Mother Teresa and John Vanier. Now, just remember, this may be the call to the cross. So Mother Teresa is one of my heroes. But I don't know if you know that after she died, her diaries were published posthumously. And th they are quite disturbing, really, because prior to going to work with the poor, she was a teacher in a convent, and she was having very profound experiences of God. And then almost, there was a six-week break at one point in her life. From the time she left, she experienced unremitting darkness in her relationship with God, caused her agony. And it remained like that for the rest of her life with one six week or so break. And eventually, through spiritual direction, she learned to discern in this a gift, that the place she would find Christ was in the face of the poor. But so the one thing, you know, if you get into this, uh, you need to realize this is not somewhere where you remain in control. It's allowing God to do God's work. And Wendell Berry says, which I rather like, God is the wildest thing in the creation. Now, I'll just give you one other example. Now, one tells of his encounter with George Stromeyer, co-founder of the Lash community. And he says this of Stromeyer. As he told his story, it became clear that Jesus is the center of his life. When he pronounces the name of Jesus, you know that he speaks from a deep, intimate encounter. His life has become simpler, more hidden, more rooted, more trusting, more open, more evangelical, and more peaceful. And then now and says, I, know, I now know for sure that there is a long, hard journey ahead of me. It is the journey of leaving everything behind for Jesus' sake. And then he says what is virtually a Caparian statement. I now know that there is a way of living, praying, being with people, caring, eating, drinking, sleeping, reading and writing, and we might add studying and teaching, in which Jesus is truly the center. Now, you know, there's a lot more. Uh, there is a book that many helped many of us in the early stages of this journey, although I must tell you we're all beginners. So that's the great thing about this. Uh, you know, it, I'm speaking about this, so now I'm the expert on spirituality, right? You've got to be kidding me. We're all beginners in, the, in this journey into, into Christ. But the language that really helped me was Elizabeth O'Connor's book from Church of the Savior in the north of Washington, D.C., Journey Inward, Journey Outward. And the genius of this is that, see, I think what Calvin, uh, Covenant and the Caparian tradition are exceptionally good at is the journey out into every aspect of God's world. 
what O'Connor reminds us is that that journey is only possible if there's a deep journey in, into a deep knowledge of yourself. Have you ever reflected on Jesus' statement, love your neighbor as yourself? Now, you can't love your neighbor without getting to know your neighbor. You've got to hang out with your neighbor. You've got to discern where your neighbor's broken, you know. Now, you've got to be like that with yourself. Calvin, you know how he starts the Institutes, know yourself, know God. That is a seminal insight, but it's one I think we are very, very bad at. So the journey inward. And then uh, what happens is that the out of the journey in emerges the call to God's service in the world. And Margaret Silf, another person I found very helpful, says, you know, in a contradiction of terms, you have to burn the candle at both ends. The one is the light that enlightens the darkness. The other is burning deeply into the very life of God who has come to us in Christ. So this is why I think, even as we embrace the Caparian tradition, uh, we've got to watch for these foxes. Intellectualism is very dangerous. Activism leads to burnout. But the one I think we need to start entertaining is deep spiritual formation. So if you have any, they can hear him. You got it. All right. Um, I'll, I'll try and run to you and bring you the mic so you can make your question heard. Um, you started with Kuiper um, engaging with a text that, are there any artists or uh, writers or anything currently that are engaging with culture in a deep and meaningful way for Christ that mm. you know of? Mm. So uh, I, I, I think there are, you know, so, uh, and I could, uh, I, I think probably if we went around the room, you would know of some, right? And I think your profs would be aware of them. So there are, I mean, we've got, you know, in literature, for example, we've got people like Annie Dillard uh, and, and all those kind of people. Uh, so uh, let me just tell you that in South Africa, I worked with a lot of professional Christian artists and at one stage, we had an arts movement of, I don't know, uh, how many people. And we had conferences, and we published a manifesto for Christians and the arts in South Africa, which is still being used, I think, in America in some places. I should tell you that, as far as I know, only about 10 of those are on the journey of the long obedience in the same direction. And it has been a cruciform journey. But I, I think there are. So one of the things is at a place like Covenant, you need to find out who, who they are. Do you have a bookstore here? Not, not like this bookstore. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I ask because I always go to the bookstore. I haven't been yet. So, you know, but yeah, see, so this is a cultural thing, Amazon. You know, so we have to, but, but you, we, we have to, uh, and one thing you can do if you want to, so the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics you know, we are trying to become a hub for all these things and contact with all sorts of people. So I if you're interested, we cannot put you on our list now in Britain unless we have your written permission. Okay, but so if you want to receive our publications and just ignore the thing about a donation, unless you're a millionaire, then please speak to me afterwards. <laughs> but uh, uh, so so that's, so we, you know, we, we have to, I think, the approach we have to take is what my friend calls glocal. Do you know what glocal is? You've got to be thoroughly rooted in the place that you're in and connected with other people in other places. So it's not global or local, it's glocal. And then, so, and I do, you know, I think burrowed all over the place. I think some, you know, there's scholars who are really trying to work in this tradition. I could think of my friend who's one of the best sculptors in South Africa, uh, working away in this tradition. The other thing I would just tell you, Paul Ellie, 
if some of you come across him, has written a big fat book. I like fat books if they're good. Because if they're good, you want them to be fatter. Of course, if they're bad, well, then they make good doorstops. But uh, Paul Ely has written a book whose title I can't remember, but it's about a time in the 20th century when there were four major Catholic writers interacting with each other. Thomas Merton, Walker Percy, uh, there's always there's two Dorothys. Uh, I think it's Dorothy Day and uh, Flannery O'Connor. It, it is mind-blowing, this book. And you know, what I want to see is a renaissance in our day of authors in the evangelical and reformed traditions of that caliber. So one of the best things, a thing that's happening at Christ, I now have, and we didn't teach this, we have three major poets associated with Christ who are publishing. You know, the one is in Paris, the one is in South Africa, uh, Chris Mann, and when Nelson Mandela was released, if you remember that in 1994, uh, we had always had Chris Mann at our, at our arts event, and we clapped politely. And then at one of Mandela's huge gatherings in South Africa, they invited Chris to read a poem. And apparently the crowd, the 10,000, just responded en masse. But it would be so good if we could uh, inspire through co covenant and places like this a whole new generation of novelists doing what uh, Charlotte Younger did for the Anglo-Catholic movement. You, know? you see, you got me going, but I've sort of answered the question. Um, I don't know if you can answer this right now or not, but w what would you say as suggestions to help somebody who severely has the fix-it syndrome? Um, yeah. How would you suggest, like for me, because I'm very much of what you described in that second point, I was like, yeah, this is me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what would you suggest in how yeah. to help maybe, I guess, yeah, yeah. a remedy or, I mean, I don't oh, know. Okay. So, you know, so first of all, the thing I would say is that desire is a very, very beautiful one. Okay, so don't lose that. You know, so, so th th that's where I would start. And, you know, just the other thing with spiritual direction, what you do is, or spirituality, you start by assuming God is already at work. That's the really good news. It's not me or Dr. Capix or, or another prof who has to start this. It's God. And he's already doing it. And what you do in Christian spirituality is you try and get alongside what God is doing. And then when you feel what God is doing, you try and breathe on that and blow it into a flame so that we become all flame. So I think, so the first thing I would say to you is the desire to bring healing to the world is an, a gift and a very, very, very beautiful one. So the first thing you would have to do is to say something like my development officer said on Woman's Day, well done me, <laughs> which I always remind her of. Okay. The second thing is uh, what, what, what happens to us, and this is the nature of being in a fallen, broken world. We take, and Satan takes the best things and the best things about us and nudges them off. Okay. So that's why, for example, marriage is one of God's best gifts. It's also where the most brokenness is experienced and the most pain. And so, so we all, with all of our gifts, so you know, if you're an intellectual like Dr. Capic, myself, and the other profs, that's a beautiful thing. But that's why we're in danger of intellectualism. Okay, to be active in God's world, that's beautiful. But that's why you're in danger of activism. So. My second point is, which you already have done, is consciousness. So the psychiatrist Jung says, the greatest sin is unconsciousness. So that's, uh, th so already I think, you know, there's a partial answer. Become aware of this, okay? And, uh, you know, sometimes I've found, uh, so I think the real remedy is a profound realization that God is the healer, not me. Okay? And then, you know, I think one has to, as you're spending silence in God's presence, 
you'll find whatever is causing these things will start to loosen. That's what happens because what spirituality does is it simply opens you so that God can be at the center and you can be not at the center. So that Christ can increase and you can genuinely decrease. You know the best phrase I have, some of you are just going to hate this because it's so un-American. It's not very British either. But I learned from uh, Sister Wendy Beckett, who I always thought was a bit weird. If you've ever watched Wendy, uh, uh, Sister Wendy Beckett, okay. and she is a bit weird, but she died recently, so we won't go there. Okay, but she, uh, I learned someone wrote a biography of her, and her great love was eight hours a day in contemplative prayer. And then to help her convent, she did a BBC program on art and a producer saw it and said give her her own shows you must read about what it's like to work with her she brings the silence to the production and I learned this phrase I think it's from her seek obscurity now that's about as countercultural as you can get don't go after your own glory go after the glory of Christ Seek obscurity. And see, I think then, uh, so partially where this has affected me, I think is, you know, so now when you're working with people who, who have needs, remember, you're not the main provider, God is. So leave lots of space for God to do his work. And then, then it will lessen, you know, the sort of compulsion to do the fix-it stuff. Uh, but anyone who's in, a, in a, a caring profession, that will be your particular danger. So Dr. Kaplick and I, I think we'll have different dangers, intellectualism. So that's why know yourself, know your calling, and know the shadow sides of both of those. So, so your question is a very beautiful question, and thank you for answering it. Can I ask a question? <laughs> Given the time. So... It's a bunch of college students. This is a great turnout. You're talking about prayer, spiritual formation. Mm. This is lovely. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were like, this, this is nice. He talks nice and soft. <laughs> I like this. I want to go rest. And you're a Kuyperian. Mm. So... Part of what I would like for you to help us understand, faculty and students, is how do we not leave, and because we hear it as evangelicals, probably more, you know, how do we not leave hearing what you say in such a way that we fragment our lives more rather than less? Mm. In other words, I want to know what the spiritual life looks like as college students. Mm. Um, how do we baptize their studies mm. rather than giving them one more to do? Mm. Can you talk through that a little bit with us before mm. us? Does that make sense? Kind of. <laughs> I'll, I'll follow up if we need. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So, you know, so uh, let me just be clear, and this came up at our lunch discussion as well. Don't turn Calvin, uh, Covenant College into a church. Okay, this is a college, and the speciality of a college, I think, is formation of the mind. Okay, so this is not a call for your profs to now spend the first half of the lecture preaching at you and reading the Bible and so on. They're there to teach you. You're here for an education. Okay, so none of that. I mean, I, I'm as passionate about that as anyone. I was a college prof and taught uh, philosophy, and I know the privilege of teaching at a place like Covenant where you're paid to bring Christ into the classroom with you, whereas at the secular uh, universities, you're paid to keep him out of the classroom. Okay, so we don't want that. So, uh, so the formation of your mind is absolutely important, but just my, my point is a very simple one. There's more to you than your mind. There's your heart out of which your thinking and your emoting and everything else emerges. 
and you'll find this if you want biblical warrants. So the thing I'm trying at the moment to think very hard is to think all this stuff through theologically and biblically. So I'm not just taking over a whole lot of Catholicism, and I have wonderful Catholic friends, but I'm not a Catholic. Okay, so I'm trying to do the hard work uh, of thinking this through. But Proverbs, guard your heart. Okay, so, you know, if, if you want to, I mean, time is running out, but let's get as practical as we can. You know, this time of the academic year, you know, I remember it so well when I was in Canada. Uh, as a prof, you're not sure how many weeks more you can do. Okay, and it's really irritating because your students are tired and you go into class hoping they will carry the class for you and they just will not do it because they are tired. <laughs> and so you have to constrain yourself and you walk around campus thinking, how did I ever get into this silly job? And students are thinking, I hate covenant. <laughs> I hate my prof and exams are coming. So now, you know, how, how do you live that? Is there a way of tending to yourself in relation to God so that you can live that more healthily? And I, I think there is. You know, and uh, so, you know, someone, Thomas Merton is one of my great heroes. And uh, someone said of Thomas Merton, it is the curse of Thomas Merton that there was not a thing he wrote that hasn't been published. But, you know, he did all his writing amidst the full routine of prayer of a monastery. All those prayer times, work in the field and everything, and yet, this enormous amount of, of, of work got done. You think of Wendell Berry. He was an English prof. Then he says, no, we're going back to Kentucky. I'm going to farm. So amidst the full life of a farmer, he won't use a computer. He uses a typewriter. He produces an extraordinary corpus of literature, uh, essays, which are my favorite. His, uh, his novels are just to die for and then a whole raft of poetry as well. So this is a very interesting to me. By attending to the heart, the journey out actually becomes richer. And so, you know, I think, uh, so, so I would recommend, I'm not recommending like, okay, you, you need to stop now and go live in the desert for 20 years like St. Anthony. What I'm asking you is something like this. Could you carve out 20 minutes in the day? Is that doable? And if you could, here's my question to you. What would you do in those 20 minutes? Because I'm saying now, and if you want to, just be incredibly selfish at this stage. I think you'll end up getting better marks. No, you're not there. So <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think you, you, what will start to happen, it may not happen easily, you will start to de-stress these exam weeks. You know, And some of you will even find for the first time you'll be excited about writing exams because it's now part of serving Jesus. It's not what mark will I get. And some of the profs, I've had this experience, will be able to slow down where they can mark attentively rather than thinking, how the heck do I get through all these manuscripts as fast as possible? I, it can change very concrete things. Great. Let's um, thank Dr. Bartholomew. <laughs> thank you for coming. He'll hang out here for a little bit if you had any follow-up questions. Thank you.